Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 240, and it's been a busy month. So we got back from Honduras, and I went to Pennsylvania for a few days, and then directly down to Maryland. So it's been about three, four weeks since we've been home. And then at the end of this upcoming week, we will be going to Iceland. So hopefully I will be bringing you some stories from there. But in the interim, I recorded one here in Maryland. I drove to Cambridge, Maryland on like the Maryland-Virginia border kind of on the Chesapeake Bay, about an hour and a half from where I am in Chestertown, Maryland right now. And I recorded with Sverir Sigurson and his wife, Veronica Lee. He grew up in Iceland, and the first time he really left to get out into the world was when he went to Finland, where he graduated uh, from architect school. And then from there, he's had voyages all over the world, from Malawi, Kuwait, uh, Swaziland, all over the place. And what interests me particularly about his book is two things. One, he went to most of these places before there was really, you know, an an internet age with travel networks and guides and how-tos and sort of like the the guides for the cultural norms of the places that he was going to. And a lot of the places he went to, he went to like right after political unrest. In fact, He talks in the book a lot about the impact of World War II on Iceland and on the Nordic countries where he was traveling through. And that was really fascinating for me because it gave a perspective that I hadn't had covered on this podcast before. So this was really an enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much to both of them for having me at their beautiful home in Cambridge. We had lunch, it was overlooking the water, and I got to learn about their lives. So there will be a link to uh, find the book, Viking Voyager, an Icelandic memoir, in the show description for whatever, in whatever podcast platform that you're listening to this in. There's also a link to my Patreon account there. Uh, This book will be one of the cool kickbacks that the Patreon supporters get. Um, that's a subscription-based service where you can give monthly and get cool things. Hopefully, I will be able to send Patreon supporters uh, postcards when we are in Iceland. I sent some from Honduras, and I don't think they've made it yet. So fingers crossed that they even make it. That was an interesting one. The post office was locked off, and it was basically a rectangular hole cut into the front door where I just handed the stuff through, handed the money through, and got my change in return. So I'm keeping the faith that they're they're still going to get to my uh, intended recipients. But yeah, that's one of the things you'll get as a, as a kickback for being a Patreon supporter. If not, spread word, word of mouth. Talk about the book. If you buy the book on Amazon, even though it's evil Amazon, leave a uh, positive review for them so that Uh, They get that good publicity, too. All right, without further ado, here is my conversation with Sverer Sigurson and Veronica Lee. Okay, well, first of all, 
thank you so much for having me here. Uh, it's I've said this probably ad nauseum at this point for listeners, but sometimes I feel like the luckiest person in the world that I get to be in these settings that, as we were talking about, I probably never would have been in without the podcast. So to get to sit here with you and have a meal and to sit overlooking the beautiful bay, uh, this is wonderful. So thank you so much. Okay, you have an incredible story. And one of the <laughs> one of the first things I noticed was that Voyager is in the title of your book, and I call my listeners Voyagers. So I was like, I need to delve a little bit deeper into this. And I read your story, and I loved it. And you start your story with your grandfather. So I was wondering if you could maybe briefly tell people about your grandfather and why you decided to start your story with his story. Okay, thank you, Tim. Um, Iceland's story. Iceland's story can be uh, <clears throat> divided into um, two or maybe three different phases. The first phase starts when uh, people from Norway first settled in Iceland about a thousand years ago. Um, that was a glorious part of Iceland. But then gradually, over the next 900 years or so, it deteriorated. And the story of my grandfather is kind of at the end of that period. It's, 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 at, the end, it's at the time when, when Iceland was really dirt poor and uh, everybody just lived hand to mouth. Um, and that was around the turn between the 1800s and 1900s. Then comes the second phase of Iceland, and that starts with World War II. And that is when suddenly, because Iceland is so strategically located in the middle of, of the Atlantic, that the Western powers descend, descend on Iceland and basically take over. But at the same time, the economy of Iceland suddenly takes off from being a dirt poor country to a well-off nation. Okay. Something I found interesting about that, and this is going to come up a lot uh well, it came up a lot in the book and it'll probably come up a few times in the conversation, is that when you study World War II in like high school in the States, you think of the primary players that they always tell you about. But I guess I hadn't thought much about what had happened in the Nordic countries. Um, and that, I think, particularly came into play when you went to Finland because it was shortly after a period of really harsh times. Okay. When I was growing up in Iceland in the um, 1940s and 50s, I had been fascinated by Finland for a variety of reasons, um, a few of which had to do with Finland's geographical position as the next-door neighbor to Soviet Union. 
it was a country of uh, all sorts of interesting things for me. The music, the literature, the, the, the buildings, uh, what have you. So when I was in high school, I decided, number one, I was going to become an architect. Number two, I was going to study in Finland, and I was the first Icelander ever to study in Finland. Now, at that time, um, Finland had just come out of the Second World War, basically uh, being beaten very badly by the Soviet Union, and Finland was, at that time, the really a dirt poor country, but it really welcomed me at that time. Mm. Going back to your your grandfather's story, my brain was popping while I was reading this for a couple of things. The first thing I was thinking, I just read this book. Um, from time to time, where I live in Brooklyn, people will throw out their items in their home, and often they're quite good items. And a lot of times I'll see people just put books out at the curb, and they're free books, and they're perfectly good. And so I got one recently by a man named, uh, I believe it's John Peck from, uh, from England. And long story short, he was a policeman, but he did a lot of reporting, a lot of like what he called pencil pushing, and it was very unfulfilling for him. And so he would create these travel challenges. Like he rode from England to Barbados across the Atlantic in a rowboat, these crazy wild things. And they're, they're dangerous, but it seems a way to sort of balance out that part of your life that's unfulfilling. And I think there's a lot of people nowadays that are getting kind of fed up with office life and things like that, and they're, they're seeking adventure in that way. Your grandfather, in a way, also had that adventure, but it was sheer necessity. And it was incredibly dangerous, and his story ends kind of tragically. And I found that as like an interesting dichotomy that people today are like going out to sea for adventure and doing dangerous things for adventure. But he did it as like this is the way that we're going to feed people because we're on an island and there's fishing. Okay, uh, let's just go back to my my grandfather a little bit. Both he and my my grandmother were dirt poor. They came both from absolutely nothing. My grandfather had lost his uh, parents when he was a teenager. My grandmother lived on a, uh, on a sheep farm. Now, the life of a sheep farmer in Iceland at that time was basically you were lucky if you lived off, lived the, through the winter, okay? Mm. But both of them and um, my grandfather until he drowned at the age of 46 as the captain of a, of a fishing vessel, he was not only fishing fish, which was a, a, a summer-long occupation, and during winter, he repaired ships. And his third occupation was sort of beyond belief. He was a very good goldsmith. He, he created um, um, fabulous um, um, things made out of gold and silver. 
And when you think of a guy who is fishing fish, one part of the year he is repairing ships, another, and then he is an incredible goldsmith also. That tells you that this guy was really uh, something. Yeah, I think you you got part of that skill, right? Because you're here making uh, things with your hands as well. I would like to think so. Um, I started out my life as growing up in um, um, uh, in a little place where there were lots of tools to make things in wood and metal. And that is how I started my career as an architect. In between, I do all sorts of wild and wonderful things, at least from my perspective. And then at the end of my career, I design and build my own house with my own hands. And I think that sort of reflects the possibilities uh, or the um, heritage that I get from my my grandfather. Mm. You know, my experience with the world is still a bit as like a tourist. I... I'll give an example. So we just went to Honduras, and there's a neighborhood there that is kind of resorty. People will take ships down from Galveston, and they'll like see a, a dance show here. They'll get back on the boat, and they'll see it's it's you're not experiencing the place. It to me it feels a bit superficial. So I try to meet people that live there, break bread with them, live as people do in the places that I go, but it's often for a short amount of time. I'm a little envious of your story because you quite literally were living in the places that you went to. Uh, and to me, that really sort of started with Finland when you went for schooling. But right before you mentioned that in the book, you mentioned that there's a word in Icelandic that I thought maybe even had almost a negative connotation of like homebody, that there's kind of maybe like a cultural expectation that you would go out and see the world in Iceland. Is that accurate? That is very accurate. We are a tiny nation. We established this place uh, when people from Norway sailed into the unknown. Um, Somebody had heard of an island out in the middle of nowhere, uh, found a place which is today called Iceland. Many of them, because these were uh, typically only males, they made a little rest stop in Scotland and especially Ireland, where they grabbed a few um, uh, women and hauled them with them to Iceland. So today, um, if you look at the DNA of the population, you will find out that uh, the female DNA is almost all from Ireland and Scotland, and the male DNA is uh, from Norway. And then they went on uh, sailing. They hit Greenland for a while, and then uh, some of the most um, uh, adventurous adventurous, uh, sailed on and found a place which is today called Newfoundland. And that is where um, one of my forefathers was born in, uh, around, two th- uh, around the year 1000. Mm. And, uh, but then they got into fights with the Indians and they said, nah, never mind. 
let's go back home. I've had a few guests on the podcast who were artists that are from Kuwait. The first, I'm a, I'm an 80s baby. Um, so the first time that like the name Kuwait ever came into into my world was the first Gulf War. And obviously I had no context at all for the world at that time. Um, so through them as guests on the podcast, I've been able to learn about the culture there. And I'm, I'm fascinated by it. And I'd love to go there one day. Um, but as is the theme with a lot of the places you went to in your, well, in your life, but in the book that I read, you went to Kuwait well before the period of time that I'm mentioning and well before there was ever really, well, clearly before there was an internet, but before there was ever really like a travel culture where you could very easily access information about where to go, what are the customs, uh, what should you eat? And it seems like it was like really the first place where you maybe had some culture shock and you thought, this is very different. Uh, so when you think back now to Kuwait, what are some of the things that were the most memorable to you that sort of define your time there? Okay, I went from Kuwait after leaving Finland, when I had graduated in Finland as an architect, I, I decided I, uh, I wanted to uh, go to different places. And I had this, what I have called a three-year plan, mm. uh, which was from Finland, I would stay uh, one year in another Scandinavian country, from there, go to the developing world and then to America before going back to Iceland. Now, I have actually gone to all these places because from Finland, I went to Sweden, stayed there for less than a year. And then um, through all sorts of strange happenstances, I went up in Kuwait uh, just after the Six-Day War, when uh, uh, Israel uh, and the Arab countries really clashed seriously, I come to Kuwait, and that is a very serious shock on all levels. Instead of being used to um, an organized country, um, a relatively cool country, and... Uh, with a culture I was familiar with, I come to a country where the temperature on arrival is something like um, in Fahrenheit, somewhere close to 120. That's the normal temperature in summer. Um, the uh, the uh, uh, meeting people who have different religion and different ideas about everything. And this is in the wake of a war when the population has been misled about everything. So it was a, it was a huge culture shock. I think those things are really important. I think it's important for people to go through culture shock. Like I remember the first time I was in a country where at like 5 a.m. I heard the call to prayer. And we're right next to a mosque. And I'm just like, whoa, like, why is that so loud? What is that? Um, to kind of shake you out of the things that you're used to. Obviously, there's a lot of divisiveness in the world right now. Um, but to put yourself in someone else's shoes and to wake up where they wake up or how they wake up, it really, I can't 
You can't say enough about it. It really changes your life. Yes, it does. And um, it was not only for me, but I would say particularly for my then, uh, my former wife. Because when we got there, I had at least a job to mm. do. She, she really had nothing to do but just to fret about the heat, the misery, the sand that was everywhere. You know, you think of sandy sand, it just sits out there. But no, in that part of the world, it's always blowing around. It blows into your garden, it fills your garden, it goes into your house, It you find it in the kitchen. You go into bed that night and you open the bed sheet and it's there. So, so basically you are talking about a culture and, a, a, and an environment which is so alien to uh, people um, from, certainly from the Nordic countries, I would say from America as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is a silly example, but I'm reading the book Dune right now, and it's a desert world. But it honestly makes me think of when I've gone to the desert and stayed overnight, sort of like what you're talking about. The sand is sort of, the sand is omnipresent. It's almost a thing. It's almost alive because it gets into everything. At night, you're washing your hair in the shower, it's coming out, it's on your table, it's all over the place. And I I can connect with that, like with what you're saying about that. Um, but while you were in Kuwait, you also took some voyages up into Iran, right? And uh, Iran, Iraq, um, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and these were uh, some of them both long and some of them actually quite dangerous trips because in some places we went to, there were no roads. Uh, we were just driving across the desert. And in some places we encountered some dangerous um, uh, positions. There were bandits we had to, we narrowly escaped from. Uh, but at the same time, and uh, let me emphasize this uh, at the time when the U.S. and Iran are at loggerheads, some of the most uh, graciously um, welcoming people I've met anywhere in the world mm. were the Iranians. We would go somewhere being lost, being um, without a hotel or anything, and suddenly yeah, we are invited into people's homes as if we were long-lost relatives. So, so that was really gratifying. Yeah, I love that. I, I talk a lot about the fact that often we look at a place through the lens of the power structure in the place or the decisions of the government and what the powerful are doing without realizing that most of the people in that country are just like you in the way that they have the same uh, desires for happiness and love and, uh, and health and a long-lasting life. Um, I, would, I would hate for somebody in a place that I'm traveling to to judge me for the decisions that our government is making here. So I understand that quite well. Um, at that 
time in that region, were there a lot of other expats or travelers or people from outside the area? Uh, yes, there were. Oh. Um, I would say, yeah. At the top levels, they were typically people from uh, um, Western Europe, um, Brits in particular. At the middle level, and again, remember, this was at the time when uh, the uh, Six-Day War had disrupted everything. You had a lot of um, people fleeing occupied areas. Um, so the middle-level um, occupations, uh, uh, lawyers, uh, engineers, doctors, and so on, they were typically Egyptians, Palestinians, those from those areas. And in Kuwait and later in Abu Dhabi, the, uh, the workers were almost exclusively Iranians who were there illegally, worked for a pittance. You can compare them with the with our southern neighbors um, uh, in the U.S., um, uh, Mexicans, um, uh, El Salvador, and so on. Um, so there were a lot of, lot of expats in, in those areas. Did you recognize at the time how exciting this might be to other people? Like, were you writing down stories or journaling, or did this feel... Um, kind of adventurous to you at the time? Not at the time. Um, the um, I just thought of this as something that um, people do. Um, obviously, some people do, but uh, but afterwards, I started recognizing that this was uh, something interesting, uh, maybe unusual. So eventually I started writing down um, um, just little snippets of um, what I had done, where I had been, um, uh, whom I had met, and, uh, and so on. And uh, started putting this down into, into little, I wouldn't even call it stories, um, just reminders of what I had done, put it into a... Um, uh, something on my um, uh, on my computer I called episodes and um, and they stayed there for years and years until many years later I actually started uh, writing or drafting this book but at, at the same time what I experienced that during those years was that I could really work with all sorts of people. Mm. And uh, I think, especially during this uh, period in the US where you have uh, very polarized uh, um, positions, people are either on this side or that side, the importance of being able to listen and uh, um, become adaptable, being able to sit here, talk to you, being able to talk to other people who have totally different ideas, listen to their ideas, uh, not condemn them, not necessarily agree with everything they say, but just being able to listen and um, uh, 
being able to work with everybody, I think that is important in life. Yeah, I'll second that. I think especially when maybe their political beliefs are different from you or even things that are like deeply held and important to them that may oppose your point of view, it doesn't mean that there can't be a commonality and it doesn't mean that you can't listen to each other. And that's something that travel has for sure shown me. And if, if people get anything from listening to this podcast, it's please go out into the world and experience those things too because we're all better for it, I think. That is actually the conclusion of my book. If you are, if you are a young person, think about the, what, uh, how much you can enrich your life by going somewhere where you know nobody, where you don't understand the culture or the language, and just try to figure out how to listen to and uh, appreciate and understand the, the culture you are in. Yeah. I was fascinated to read about Abu Dhabi in your book because uh, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think if people think about the country today, they think about all this sort of like industrial progress. Um, there are tons of buildings. People go there to do things like skydiving and riding uh, quads in the desert. It's a place that a lot of people go as travelers to have some fun. Um, but this, the time that you went there was before all of this development. What was the country like when you were there? There was, okay, think of a huge sandbox where people are uh, building things. The main street is just an enormous sandbox where even Land Rovers um, got stuck from time to time. The, um, uh, nothing seemed sort of normal. We, I lived there in a dormitory with a bunch of people. We had little just alcoves where we slept. Um, at the same time, we were building this uh, enormous palace for the ruler of the place. And the palace, uh, it was, I mean, it was an enormous um, edifice surrounded by little, four little sort of uh, sub-palaces, if you like, uh, which we would call harems. That was uh, where the uh, women of, of the, uh, the ruler uh, lived with their families and children and so on. Uh, this sounds all very exciting and exotic, but uh, but in reality, from my perspective, this was just an enormous construction site where there was no limit on the money you could spend on um, absolutely crazy things like having stereo music in the in everybody's bathroom and the water taps were made of solid gold and the. And the um, uh, emir decided that he wanted to build a penthouse on top of, uh, of a structure that was never intended for that uh, because he said, never mind, you know, laws of gravity and that, that sort of things don't apply to me. I'm important. 
so this was a crazy time, but um, uh, it, it was fun. We're talking about places that have distinct cultures and cultural norms, as every place does. You know, you're going from Finland to the Middle East to Malawi. Would you have someone like on the ground from one of the projects you were working on that would talk to you about customs and things like that? Like, how would you get acclimated quickly to a place that's so different from the place you were before? Sometimes it worked reasonably well, sometimes not so well. Uh, when I moved from uh, the Middle East to one of the richest areas in the world, to Malawi, which is still is, uh, one of the poorest countries in the world, um, there was a culture shock on, on many levels. Uh, what One of the things that impressed me when I landed in Malawi was how clean everything was compared with the Middle East where everything was filled with things that people had discarded and were either just heaping up in the streets or blowing away. Uh, in Malawi, everything was clean. It took me a while to realize why. It was because everybody was so dirty that even a piece of paper that was blowing in the wind had some value. So you picked it up and uh, hoarded it. Um, but the culture was totally different, of course. Um, in Malawi, it so happened that uh, they had this uh, British club and the Brits were still, although the country was independent, the Brits were still sort of ruling the place. And uh, they had their club, and uh, you sat there at the club and drank um, uh, wine, wine or gin and tonic, typically. And they would tell you what the... Um, what was important in the place, including facts, for instance, that... Uh, a woman could not show the back of her knees because uh, some, for some reason the back of a woman's knees was uh, very sexually explicit and mm. uh, inviting and whatever. So uh, it was very ad hoc, but uh, you tried, to, tried your best through connections, uh, conversations and so on to uh, uh, get acquainted with the place. You mentioned working on the palace in Abu Dhabi. This was quite a different work project, right? It was building schools in Malawi? In Malawi, it was building schools. And the transition was on many, in many ways very fundamental. Firstly, for, from one of the richest uh, countries in the world to one of the poorest. But it was also until and including um, Abu Dhabi, I had been working for a private company. In Malawi, I was suddenly in the international system of uh, first UNESCO and then uh, uh, later the World Bank. So, so in Malawi and pretty much ever since, uh, it was... Uh, basically improving the education systems in uh, in the part that part of the world 
and uh, and working for international institutions. While you were there, uh, you had some amazing experiences that I'm quite envious about. I was wondering if you could tell me about uh, what it was like seeing Victoria Falls, which looks absolutely incredible to me. <laughs> it was a long, uh, it was a long trip crossing a country. I have seen Niagara Falls, mm-hmm. which are, of course, very impressive. Uh, Victoria Falls make Niagara Falls like a little stream. To see the Zambezi, uh, and the Zambezi, the Zambezi River is um, just enormous. I've crossed the Zambezi uh, much further downstream, and uh, at that time there was no bridge. You were on a ferry, and the ferry was uh, just hauled by a ferry boat. And as we were being hauled across the Zambezi River, and it was about a mile wide at the time, at that place, they said, okay, Here's the uh, here's the uh, ferry um, uh, platform, which is hauled by by a, a, a tugboat, and then there is a, another boat that follows. And they said that boat is there in case of something happens to the to the uh, place where your car is on, and they are going to haul you out of the river bef- before the crocodiles eat you. Whoa. <laughs> That is quite an adventure. <laughs> okay, and uh, and um, again, as you are watching the uh, the river turn into these vertical Vic- Victoria Falls, which make everything just shake and thunder in that area, you see just at the edge as the river. Uh, turns from horizontal into vertical, there's this herd of elephants bathing just at the edge. And there is mama and papa elephant, and there are these little, tiny little, little elephants, but they still can walk, wade the river. And I'm looking at them and I said, Mama and Papa elephant afraid that the uh, the little kids are just going to be swept over and never to be seen again. But obviously, the elephants have been doing that for the past thousand years, so or thousands of years, I should say. So, no, okay. haven't. <laughs> um, the, the book is co-written, um, and Veronica, you're here with us. If it's okay to include you. Uh, I'm wondering where you were in the world when your paths first crossed. We were both working for the World Bank. Actually, we first met in the same office, uh, which is working on education in East Asia. But then shortly after I joined, he left that office and went to work on the Middle East uh, but then we uh, continued to see each other, and we dated for a while, and uh, that was that. 
you've both been all around the world and uh, food is a reason to travel. We were talking before about fermented shark in Iceland. Um, it, it can be a reason why you fly into or take a car into a place even for 24 hours to try this specific thing in this place. Of all of the places that you've both been, excluding, you know, Iceland for you, excluding the States because you've spent a lot of time here, uh, where are your best food experiences and food memories from? I am partial to Thai food. Uh, I like things spicy. Yeah. And uh, when, you, when you're walking around Bangkok, there are just food stalls everywhere. And you just sit down anywhere. And the food is delicious. Uh, very hot and very fresh. They cook it right in front of you. Uh, so that's for me. Sarah, on the other hand, doesn't like spicy food that much. He likes a bit of it. But when I cook Thai, I tone it down. But he, he's a good sport. <laughs> what about for you? Um, I like uh, I like Asian food, but as Veronica said, it has to be toned down spice-wise. I remember my my first experience with um, exotic foods was in Kuwait, and uh, I was reasonably fluent in English, but. Uh, not necessarily in colloquial English. So uh, I and my co-workers went into an Indian restaurant in Kuwait and uh, uh, the proprietor asked, Sir, do you like your food hot? And I said, of course I like my food <laughs> hot. I was talking about temperature and I got my food hot and I learned the hard way. <laughs> hot and hot is not necessarily the same thing. Sometimes when I'm traveling, I'm obviously always trying to try as much of whatever's local as possible. Even when I'm here in the States, and this is this part of Maryland is amazing for like really fresh local food. But we were talking about how I was in Indonesia for a while. And in Indonesia, it is a bit hard to get some of like my comforts from home, like cheese. There are nowadays like there's Western markets, there's like a supermarket called Ranch 90 or Ranch 99 or something like that. And you can get, um, you know, some cheeses from home. But like, you know, I'm a bit German. I like cheese and pretzels and it's sometimes hard to find. Uh, you had an interesting story in the book about um, being in a country that doesn't have alcohol. And you were essentially distilling rice wine. Uh, I There's a gentleman actually where I started my day over in Chestertown that tells me stories about time that he worked. Uh, he lived in Iran and he worked in Saudi Arabia. And he's like, Tim, everyone had their own distill in the garage. Like, you weren't supposed to, but everyone had it. We had a lot of British guys. <laughs> British guys love their beer from the pub. They can't have it, so they made their own. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting. And uh, I was curious about your... Uh, your experiences with a, a home brew in uh, in the Middle East. Uh, this was at the time when 
we were just switching uh, houses, and uh, it so happened that uh, a friend of ours, uh, a Dutch from Indonesia, who had been living in Indonesia, like many Dutch men do, um, he rented us his place, and uh, as part of the deal was this uh, huge um, uh, glass container that could be used for a variety of things, including making uh, alcohol. Um, and it came also with the recipe for how to how to make Dutch rice wine. So um, we did not okay. We did not distill anything. We we just brewed wine and uh, and, and drank that wine. But uh, our pop. Popularity in in Kuwait increased enormously <laughs> as uh, as we kept on brewing brewing this uh, brew. Within retrospect, I, I've t- tasted something similar, and I think it is pretty awful. But but it had the right effects. And uh, actually, one of the reasons why we never tried to distill it into something some hard liquor was that uh, our Swedish friends who were working for L.M. Eriksson uh, in Kuwait at the time, they tried to distill things and uh, they were babysitting their uh, um, still. When something went wrong, the guy actually fell asleep and suddenly the alcohol fumes and everything uh, exploded. So we thought it was more prudent to um, just... uh, just brew wine rather than try to distill it into hard liquor. Would people get in a lot of trouble if they were caught? I never heard of anybody getting into trouble. Um, of course, there was this uh, this police that was, uh, but they were especially interested in catching people who, uh, uh, that were somehow disrespecting the local uh, Muslim traditions. And uh, Muslim traditions, you might say, yeah, drinking alcohol is not among them, but uh, but it's not a big, it was not a big deal at the time. By the way, the Prophet Muhammad himself when he declared that alcohol was uh, not uh, a good thing to uh, drink too much of, he had gotten himself dead drunk, and he declared somewhere in his writings that being too drunk is no good. He never said that you shouldn't drink alcohol. It was just don't do it in excess. It has since been, of course, changed into something. Don't drink alcohol at all. I love storytelling, obviously. So your book was right up my alley. Um, I am a big fan of listening to travel stories by Henry Rollins. If you're familiar with Henry Rollins, he founded the, the, well, not founded, but he was for a while the singer of the punk band Black Flag. And he's gone on to now be like a world traveler and writer and a proponent for doing the type of travel that we're talking about and and learning about people. And he said, 
one of the reasons of many reasons to travel is so that I can live more epically. I want to have a lifetime of stories and I want to, you know, be constantly telling my stories to people. And the selfish aspect of travel for me is I feel the same way. Like, I love telling my stories now. I can't wait for 30 years down the line when I've got 30 more years of stories in the bank and I'm just going to be telling people constantly. I would imagine with all of these incredible experiences that you were telling people these stories. At what point did you both think like, hey, this could really work in book format. Let's let's try this out. Uh, well, Sverre had this these episodes um, where he described some of his travel experiences. Uh, it's like a shoebox of um, photographs. You know, you don't know what to do with them, so you dump them all in a shoebox. And then once in a while, you open it and take a look and say, "Hey, the, you know, it brings brings back really fond memories." So anyway, he showed me a few of his episodes. Now, I have heard about these stories, mm -hmm. kind of bits and pieces of it, um, and, you know, just talking. And I would laugh and, you know, and uh, forget about it. But reading it um, written down and as a whole story, the episode from beginning to end, made me realize how epic it was. I'll give you an example. He, when he left Kuwait, he left by car to go back to Iceland, if you can believe that is possible. <laughs> no. He and his um, wife at the time and a child uh, took a road trip, drove a car through the Middle East, Iran, Iraq, through uh, some countries in Eastern Europe, all the way up to Copenhagen. Did you realize that was possible? <laughs> no. I didn't. <laughs> anyway, and then he took a ferry from Copenhagen to Iceland. So that was really epic. Um, and it's his way of going home, his adventurous spirit. And also wherever he passes, he notices the culture, the history of the people, and he describes them. So it's not just about his life. It's about all the places he visited. Yeah, I really loved that aspect of the book. And I read a, I think it was a print interview because I've researched you both a bit, <laughs> um, where you're even talking about sort of like the choice of using the name Viking and sort of the connotation that comes with that, uh, which for a lot of people is negative because they think of pillaging and killing and destroying. Um but that maybe there's there's more nuance to it than that. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about that for a bit because I respected a lot of the choices that you made in the book in not necessarily passing judgment on things, but allowing people to to learn themselves, I guess, and to sort of make their opinion. My family background is, of course, Iceland, and then Iceland. Um, <clears throat> If you go a few generations back, everybody is pretty much related. So, so when I trace my story back to uh, the settlement of Iceland and uh, and to guys um, like uh, Leif Eriksson and Eric the Red, uh, these are all family members, mm -hmm. if you like, uh, a few dozen uh, generations ago. Uh, we discussed this in the beginning. Um, 
Veronica, who is an established writer, said, we have to have a theme. We cannot just have, just say, I, I went there and I went there and so on. There has to be a theme. And uh, we settled on the theme of uh, a Viking exploring bits and pieces of the world. And as we say, uh, as was common in Iceland, people would would go abroad for a period of time, get experience, rape and plunder, if you like. In our lore, they were they they, they were basically selling stuff, but uh, sometimes they were sort of tw- arm twisting and uh, doing all sorts of unethical things. But but uh, but basically, the theme was the Viking way from a thousand years ago, which was people grew up, if you were dumb, you stayed home. If you were adventurous, you went abroad and became famous and rich and uh, and came back home. In my case, I went from Iceland to Finland, to the Middle East, to Africa, to the US and then side trips all over the world and uh, but many of the Vikings never actually came back home. They settled in places like Dublin. This was established by the by the Vikings. Um, uh, York in uh, in in England was a Viking town. Normandy Russia, Russia. Part of, by, part of Russia was uh, um, was established by by the Vikings, so many of them settled abroad and never came home. I am one of those. I settled abroad. I'm here on the on the shore of the Chesapeake Bay. And there are Vikings and Vi- and there are Vikings. Uh, the early Vikings, um, eight hundred to a thousand, uh, were the ones who went around especially the British Isles, looting and raping and plundering. Uh, those are the Vikings that most people have in their minds. But then after that period, um, the Vikings were, say from Iceland, were people who went to Norway or some bigger country to serve a king or a lord to learn and to uh, prove themselves in battle and then go home. And then now, now we have the modern-day Vikings, uh, somebody like Sverre, who <laughs> leaves home to study. Uh, you have to. Iceland is a very small country, and there are certain subjects that they don't offer in the university there. So for architecture, he had to go, to, go abroad, and he chose Finland. And then, um, so modern-day Viking are people who go overseas to study and learn, and then to compete and contribute on the world stage. Okay, let me butt in here. We are talking about the Vikings. And uh, in the eyes of many Americans and others, the Vikings are these guys with a helmet and horns on the helmets, okay? Guess what? Horns on the helmets were never ever part of the Viking culture. They had helmets, yes, when they were fighting, but none of them ever had horns. 
So you still go back to Iceland every two years or so? Yes. How has Iceland changed and transformed over time as you go back and forth between the states and Iceland? Okay. Uh, as I mentioned in the beginning of the interview, um, when Iceland was east found, it was literally found and established uh, um, around a bit over a thousand years ago. Um, it was an island which uh, was totally in uninhabited. And then over the next thousand years, um, it became increasingly difficult to live on that island because of a variety of things, uh, uh, including weather, was something called the Little Ice Age, very cold, um, really devastating sicknesses, and especially in the in the end of the uh, 18th century, one of the uh, most devastating uh, volcanic eruptions ever anywhere in the world. It actually, it literally. It is believed to have changed the course of history in Europe because the, the plumes of the eruption in Iceland uh, devastated crops in Northern Europe so people did not have enough to eat. So therefore, this let them eat cake, which is... Maria Antoinette is supposed to have said they didn't have anything to eat in Northern Europe. And in Iceland, it was much worse. Um, about a third of the population was killed. But then, um, then fast forward to this, or the immediately, you know, the 1900s. Uh, the Ireland's economies gradually, especially during and after the Second World War when Iceland became so important to everybody, first in the struggle against the Germans and then later, later in, the, in the Cold War. Uh, and Iceland became well known. But it was not until about, uh, I would say, 10 years ago, that 10 years ago that suddenly everybody, every tourist in the world is suddenly flocking to, uh, to Iceland. When we went first to Iceland, uh, um, when Veronica went first to Iceland about 20 years ago, we never bothered to book a hotel room anywhere. We just went around the country and knocked on the door and... Uh, Try to do that today, and you <laughs> will be out of luck. And my first trip to Iceland was in 1990. And um, so one time walking on the street, I saw on the other side of the street an Asian woman. I'm Chinese myself, and I have not seen any, anybody looking like me in Iceland. And then suddenly we both stopped and stared <laughs> at each other and stared. <laughs> and we finally smiled and went on our way. That was in 1990. Uh, a few years ago, 
uh, this tourist rush in uh, to Iceland, and busloads of Asian tourists would be swarming all over Reykjavik. Uh, that is, you know, a a country of three hundred sixty thousand people. That's not a lot, and the number of tourists that year was like two million. So. You can imagine how much that country has changed. Yeah, I was fascinated by that when you were telling me earlier that what it, today is it six million expats or, or tourists in Iceland? Two, two million. Oh, two, two million. million two million. Okay. Yeah. Still, three hundred sixty thousand people. Incredible. Yeah. I can't. Maybe Lithuania. I can't think of another yeah. country with a population so small that maybe yeah. is like out. Uh, that that there's more tourists than the, the yeah. native folks. Yeah. And unfortunately. Uh, much damage has been done, I think, to to, to the, the natural the environment. Nature is very fragile, so uh, the country was not prepared for this huge influx mm. of tourists. So, so they it's very easy to damage nature, you know, unintendedly. Just walk people just walking over all these sort of tourist attractions and. Uh, uh, not necessarily leaving trash behind, but just uh, stepping on the delicate uh, uh, flowers and uh, yeah. uh, stuff. And vegetation in uh, in Iceland is very fragile. You can imagine this is just, you know, a little bit south of the Arctic Circle. Mm. So it's really, um, vegetation is like moss and all kinds of tundra stuff. So you step on it, you're killing it Uh Fortunately, well, I, I'm not sure if anything good comes out of this COVID. Uh, there was a pause in tourism in Iceland, and the authorities, instead of um, uh, holding back on tourism, it spent money on tourism. It built trails and paths, and even boardwalks in certain areas to protect the environment. And so, the last time we went back, we saw this happening. Um, so the, some of the areas the, the, where the vegetation we thought was damaged is being um, repaired. Okay, that's good. Yes, wow. yes. Uh, I'm curious about the creative process. If you've already been published and have the writing experience and you have the stories but you haven't quite written them and published them yet, um, Myself, I have a lot of resistance to my own creativity. I love to be creative, but I often struggle to the, get the finished product out because I like hate everything I've created. Like I look at it so critically. Uh, what was the process like for the two of you to be working on one project together? Well, I think first of all, I use my memoir writing skills since I've done one memoir, uh, which is about my mother's life story. Uh, so through that process, I learned a lot. And the first thing I was taught is that you have to have a focus, a theme. You can't just, as Fair had said before, you know, go all over the place, you know, one anecdote here, one anecdote there. You have to have a focus, a theme to tie all the stories together. So you know what the point is, what this is about. And so for him, the theme I thought was pretty obvious, the making of a modern Viking so with that in mind, uh, even the early part, which is his uh, um, 
his grandparents' story and his story of growing up in in Iceland, all that can be tied to the later part, which is his travels all o- all over the world. So we can tie it into one book. Mm. Uh, as for as for our cooperation, um, I have to say, friends have asked us, "Are you guys still married?" <laughs> <laughs> Did you, you mentioned having it translated and now having it in the bookstore in Iceland. Was there any pressure that you felt in like Icelandic people reading about the Iceland parts that, that you portrayed? Uh, the, uh, okay, firstly, I, when, uh, when I got encouraged to, uh, uh, translate the the English version into uh, into Icelandic my first idea would be was where do I find somebody competent who can do the translation and the more I thought about it it, it became this story this is my story and although my Icelandic is uh, very much out of date I should really try to do it myself. And it was, when you think about it, I haven't used Icelandic for about 60 years. I wasn't sure I could do it. So I started with contacting a couple of people, one of them a well-known author in Iceland uh, and a friend of mine from from. From primary school, uh, my, uh, my dad asked my, my dad. Uh, I sent a few pages to her of my translation and and said, "What do you think?" And she wrote back and said, uh, "Obviously, the English influence is noticeable, and uh, the language, uh, the use of words, is very much out of date." But uh, the latter one is is uh, uh, perfectly acceptable because this is your story and you're telling a story of somebody who hasn't been in Iceland for the past 60 years. And, uh, and, the, and the other part, um, have somebody just uh, edit it, read, read through it and work with that person. Unfortunately, we found somebody uh, who was very, very uh, good person to work with on that. So, so it became um, a product I'm quite proud of. Mm. And we are, by, by the way, right now, uh, reading the final uh, touches of the... Uh, uh, the final book format, and the book will be published, and I must say I'm very proud of that uh, uh, in hardcover. Mm. Uh, the publishing date is um, October. Um, probably few people here know that uh, uh, Icelanders give books as Christmas presents. So either we hit the Christmas market or as my publisher said, it's like 
if we if the book comes out in January, it's like selling Christmas trees in January. <laughs> I understand. Um, for both of you, is there a creative project that comes after this? So if someone listens to this conversation and reads the book and thinks, I want more from them, uh, is there anything that they can expect? Um, I always work on things that fall into my lap that is so obvious uh, that I cannot rest unless I've done it. I So far, nothing has happened yet, but it's okay. It will come sooner or later. Something will come. And in the meantime, when I'm at this stage, when I'm waiting for something to fall into my lap, I write short stories and essays. That Are they available somewhere or those are unpublished right now? They're, they're not published yet. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'd be curious to, to read those someday, so that sounds interesting. Okay. And I'm just sitting here and uh, fixing the house which I um, built and we are sitting in right now and uh, need some um, attention, um, especially when we have... Um, when we have serious um, um, hurricanes and storms because we are sitting here six feet above sea level and uh, the water front is about 100 feet over there. And uh, uh, this house, which I love, uh, needs serious maintenance and attention from time to time. So that's basically what I'm working on. Okay. But if anybody is interested in my past writing, oh, yeah. I have a memoir. Uh, this is about my mother's life. It's called Journey Across the Four Seas, um, A Chinese Woman's Search for Home. Uh, at the time my mother came to live with me, she was in her 80s, so I was taking care of both my parents. And my mom is a great storyteller, and she was just nonstop cornering me and telling me, have I ever told you this or that? <laughs> so I said, okay, okay, mom, just sit down. We'll record you and I'll write everything down. Aww. Well, I'll have a link in everyone knows whatever player you're listening to this in, go the, to the description and I'll have a link to, to your work uh, as well as the, the memoir that we've been talking about this whole episode. So Patreon supporters, too. You guys will get a little surprise in your mail sometime within the next couple of weeks. I'm also going to Iceland, so I can't mail anything while I'm away. So I'll try to get that done before I leave. But uh, I want to thank you both again. Um, I love doing this. These conversations are really meaningful for me. And it's always an honor when someone even trusts me enough to, to share their story. So thanks for, for sitting down today and for uh, allowing me and all the voyagers out there to get to know you. So thank you. That is a wrap on episode 240 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Hopefully, this is the first of multiple Icelandic-themed episodes that will be coming out in August. I don't have anything completely locked in for Iceland yet, but there's some people that I've been talking to. Before we go, though, I'm going to head out east on Long Island when we get back to New York and head to Montauk again. So there will be a couple more episodes before we leave, so you'll have that to look forward to. And then, who knows, I may go radio silent for a bit uh, while we're away. I don't really plan on bringing my computer with me, but 
We'll see what happens. At the very least, you'll have some stuff when I come home. Okay, Voyagers, hope you're enjoying the summer. Hope you're making some stories of your own. I will catch you very, very soon. Please take care of each other. Peace.